0: Thank you, Carolyn, for leading us so beautifully, and good morning, church. Good morning to everybody in the room, and especially welcome to everyone who is joining us online. And I hope that never feels like a cliché. You are welcome. Your presence with us is something that we cherish, it's something that we pray for and pray about everybody, wherever you're watching. If you're joining us for the very first time online, uh, even if we've never met in person, I hope you begin to feel at home here, especially in a world and in a climate where there are very few places anymore that feel much like home. So welcome to all of you. Uh, As you've heard a couple of times now already, the big question we're tackling this weekend what does the bible have to say about women and issues of gender equality are men and women created equal in the eyes of god and if so what does that look like i have a little book on my shelves a a favorite that i've carried with me now for three decades it's called children's letters to god and many of them are absolutely priceless written in their own hand their own script but there's one in there that says simply dear god Are boys better than girls? I know you are one, but please try to be fair. (laughs) One of the most important teachings of the Bible, and this comes from Jesus, is that God is spirit, which means that God doesn't have a body, which means that God doesn't have sex organs. He doesn't have testosterone or estrogen. God doesn't shave. God... God transcends gender in the same way that he transcends ethnicity and race and nationality and all those human categories. According to Genesis, and and this makes uh, the scriptural view of humanity absolutely unique in the ancient world, according to Genesis, men don't bear the image of God any more than women do. And that may make you rethink a little bit about how you understand women or men or God all of it matters. If you were with us last week, you know we launched into this new series for the fall. That's a tough question. That's a great question. We want to wrestle honestly and do so openly with some of the most controversial and yet some of the most prevalent and relevant issues of our day. Does faith make sense in our world? Can you be a thinking person and also a committed follower of Jesus? And certainly, One of those key questions, and one of the questions that has has had an awful lot of currency in the world over this past generation, is the question around the Bible's understanding of gender and gender differences. To put it really bluntly, is the Bible sexist? And that's not an abstract theological question. That's That's a very relevant practical question for how we live out our lives. I want you to keep in mind, as we launch into the message today, the plight of women and the status of women around the world today, because sometimes we can be myopic living here in Canada. In 1990, Armatya Sen wrote one of the, the world's most influential essays about this subject. She titled it, More Than 100 Million Women Are Missing. It was about gender imbalance in places like China and India and elsewhere. Twenty years later, the situation is even worse. Mar Vestandal published a book called Unnatural Selection, Choosing Boys Over Girls, The Consequences of a World Full of Men, was the title. And uh, she noted that in Asia alone, there's an imbalance of 163 million males over females. How does that happen? It happens because when a fetus is identified as female, it's much more likely to be unwanted or aborted or left or exposed or abandoned. And then 20 years later, we reap the consequences of that because families can't find brides for their sons. And so poor families are more likely to sell their daughters, which leads to sex trafficking in the world. On our own side of the ocean, we've heard a lot about the Me Too movement and and about the bro culture dynamics of our urban centers, these things that, that are demeaning to human beings. But maybe few people are aware of this. According to the World Health Organization, one in three women in the world will experience physical or sexual violence in their lifetime. One in three According to UNESCO, one in every four girls in developing countries will not be able to complete even a primary school education. So we need to talk about this. We need to deal with it, we need to deal with it seriously, we need to deal with it in the light not just of of the world, but also of the scriptures that we hold as sacred. Now maybe you're from a primarily secular background, and you read the Bible, and, and you read there's polygamy in there, and there's systems that look and feel patriarchal, and there's statements about husbands who are going to rule over their wives, and you wonder how could a thoughtful person hold to this kind of thing? but maybe you're from a really churched background that taught that that it was part of God's design for human and women live in these roles that are complementary and you've tried to live that out in your own life whatever you come to the table with in this discussion i hope that we can say this as a church family that at MCBC we want to engage these kinds of questions in a way that's thoughtful that's informed that values the life of the mind, and that upholds the sacredness and the authority of the Bible when it's rightly understood. So here's what I'd like to do this morning. And it's going to take some time to do it. So I hope you'll tuck in in a nice, comfortable position. Feel free, if you need to, to stand up and stretch. If you're joining us online, to fill the coffee cup extra high. We've got a fair bit of material to get through. I hope at the end you'll agree that it's been worth it. But what I'd like to do with you this morning is give you a brief explanation of two positions, the church's two primary positions on the question of gender equality. Complementarian, say that with me. Complementarian, that doesn't mean you give compliments, though that's not a bad thing. Complementarian and egalitarian. And I'm going to do my very best to show you how both teachings are rooted in and based in swai. But as I will say again and again in the coming weeks, I am, like you, a student of God's Word. And I'm doing my best to dig deeply into the Word of God, the whole counsel of God, not just lift one verse from here or there out of context. And I absolutely don't claim to be infallible. In fact, you should run away from any human teacher that claims that. But I'll tell you where I've arrived, and that doesn't mean that there aren't people among my closest group of friends or people within the family of God here at MCBC that have arrived at a different place. But what I refuse to accept and what I urge you absolutely to reject is the claim that one group and one group only can hold to the absolute truth and the suggestion that they hold on to the clear teaching of the Bible and the other group has rejected it. These are people of deep conviction and sincere faith, committed students of scripture who are both trying to honor God's word and both have wrestled it out and maybe they've arrived in different places. So those are kind of the ground rules. Is that fair? Does that sound fair? Okay. So... Let me lay it out. Let me do it humbly as as we try and get the conversation started. And I just want to start by acknowledging my own bias, because you you need to know this. None of us come to these discussions unbiased. So here it is. I believe that the church was born to be an equal, egalitarian community, a place where men and women serve together based on their giftedness. That's important. Based on their giftedness, not on pre-designed hierarchy. God governs through gifts. He gives people gifts. And people who have gifts of leadership should lead. And I see clear examples of that in Scripture. That position is called egalitarianism. It's one of the ways that thoughtful followers of Jesus have understood the Bible and tried to live out the values of the Bible in the church. But there's another position. And it has also merit and is also based in Scripture. It's called complementarianism a stream of interpretation. Again, thoughtful, committed followers of Jesus. The suggestion here is that women and men are equal in dignity and in worth, but different in role and in purpose, that they were created to complement each other, hence the word complementarian, and that in their different roles, men are sometimes called to exercise positions of leadership and authority that are not available to women. That wouldn't be seen by complementarians as inequality, but a difference in purpose and one that reflects God's design. Let's push a little bit deeper. Complementarians understand that the father is the head of the household. They believe that a man should love his wife as Christ loved the church, but that a woman should submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ. And they believe that the design for family should be reflected in the way that the church is organized and it's led. So that women can hold positions of leadership, and they do, and they've done incredible work through the centuries, so long as those positions of leadership don't place them in authority over men. And those views, as I said, grounded in scripture, are based in about I'll say a half dozen or so passages from the Bible, and we put those in your notes. And if you didn't bring your notes with you, um, let me encourage you to, to find them later today or during the week, or you can log into your device. You can find them right there on our website, Sermon Notes and Study Guide. But a half dozen scriptures there. And as you're looking through those scriptures, I want you to recognize too that egalitarians would point to many of those same scriptures and say, Absolutely. The church is trying to work out what it looks like to be the church in very specific situations, in particular cities. Cities like Corinth, which we're going to look at today. But they would also want to point to another whole set of scriptures. Again, you have them listed out in your notes. That identifies and upholds women who are involved in the very positions of leadership that we're talking about. Deacons like Phoebe. Teachers like Priscilla, patronesses of the church, meaning the benefactors who kept the church going like like Lydia, an apostle named Junia, and more. I think that they would want to say that household roles and practices in the ancient world may not be a timeless guide or even the best guide for understanding what leadership looks like in the church. And they would always want to come back to that metaphor that says, if the church is indeed the bride of Christ, then we all, as the household of God, are in submission to Jesus. So there you have it. Egalitarian, complementarian. And I don't think that the thoughtful proponents of either position would ever suggest that that the women among us are somehow second-class citizens in the kingdom of God or lesser in the eyes of their creator. Of course, there are people who would seem to teach those things. They do nothing, nothing but dishonor the faith and bring a distorted God, idea of God to the world. And, and if you ask me, it's hateful rubbish, and it belongs on the ash heap of history. We struggled a lot with how how best to do this today, and I thought maybe the best way would be to just identify one of those passages of Scripture and work our way through. Again, there's about a half dozen or so, but I'd like to work with you through a passage in 1 Corinthians 11. So if you have your Bibles, have your devices. This is one of the passages that is most often cited. It's kind of a head-scratcher for many of us, so it's good that we can start there. I want us to read through the entire passage, we'll comment on it a little bit, and then we'll try and capture something of the whole sweep of gender teaching in the Bible. And then in the end, I think we ought to think about and wrestle with and talk about what it means for you and me and our sons and our daughters. So again... This is 1 Corinthians 11:2 to 16. Let me warn you, passage was written about 2000 years ago in a culture very different from ours. And some of it is going to sound a little bit unfamiliar, maybe even a little obscure. But it's okay, hold on and we'll work it through. I'm delighted that Michael and Jade are here to read it for us. 1 Corinthians 11:2 to 16.
1: Good morning, Mrs. Saga. Verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head.
2: But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved, for if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head.
1: A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man.
2: It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman.
1: For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him?
2: But that if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Thank you.
0: So here we go. <laughs> a lot, obviously, of, of what Paul is writing about here, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, is speaking to a situation in their culture that we don't know very much about. But I do want to draw out a few key things from the text, and, and they will speak to, again, both of those sides that we talked about, egalitarianism, complementarianism. But here's the first of the key observations I'd like to make. Have a look at verse 5. Verse 5, I think, is critical here. Because in verse 5, Paul seems to be affirming that public ministry is for women. Paul's expressly saying in verse 5, women must pray and prophesy before the congregation. To prophesy, in that context, means to deliver the teaching, the message of God. It's a term that overlapped a lot with teaching in the way it's used in the New Testament. Now, there are those who would argue that women should do this, but they should do this only for other women. And based on that understanding, that principle, there are churches observing the principle that would mean uh, that would mean in public gatherings where men and women are gathered together, the teaching pastor or elder would always be male. You understand the rationale? Uh, they would point to parallel passages like this one. If you want to leave your thumb in 1 Corinthians... Go with me to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2. In 1 Timothy 2 11 and 12, again, Paul writing about a specific situation says, A woman should learn in quietness and in full submission. Note he doesn't say that women shouldn't learn, but. And he goes on to say, I don't permit a woman to teach or assume authority over her. And the word there is husband. Um, sometimes it says man, but and I don't know whether it changes the context or not, but I don't permit a woman to teach or assume authority over her husband. Keep that in your mind. It's important because we want to maintain the balance here in the discussion. Let's come on back to 1 Corinthians 11, where it seems clear, at least in that context, when Paul is going on and on about the veil and head coverings and long hair and and short hair, uh, that he's talking about women speaking in an audience where men and women are both present. And sometimes we get hung up on the other part, the head coverings and hair length. But the most striking part of the teaching to me is that women are teaching and that they're praying and they're prophesying in these early gatherings of Jesus, a radical departure from the history of Israel. It used to be that in order to form a synagogue, the only thing that was required was the presence of 10 men. Then you could form a synagogue. Women didn't count. Or you didn't count them. In Israel, as in all cultures, there were lots of different teachings and thoughts about gender. But among those very ancient sayings of rabbis, it was claimed, Better the Torah be burned than taught to a woman. Never forget the backdrop in which these revolutionary changes are happening. Where women are not just permitted, but invited to learn. To sit at the feet of Jesus. Paul is saying this is a new day. Teaching and learning is to include everybody, women and men, both in speaking and in listening. Now, how did the idea come about, this revolutionary change? Well, let me give you a little hint. Paul is a a deeply learned man. He's brilliant. He valued education, higher education. He says, speaking about himself, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was arguably the leading intellectual of the day. To sit at the feet of a rabbi is a technical term. It means to be chosen as one of the disciples. It's kind of like when you fill out your university applications, you put down two or three that you know you'll get into, and then there's one that's a stretch. And you get into your stretch school. Gamaliel was absolutely the stretch school in ancient Israel. And he got to sit at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, keep that image in your mind. And again, with one thumb in 1 Corinthians 11, have a look with me in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 10. This is Luke 10, verses 38 through 42. If you're a Bible person, you know this story. You've heard the story of Mary and Martha. In the story, Martha's busy working away in the the kitchen. She comes out to Jesus and complains. Why? Mary's not helping out. Martha, Martha. Jesus replies, by the way, if Jesus uses your name twice, you're in trouble. But (laughs) Martha, Martha, Mary has chosen what's better. And it won't be taken away from her. What is it that Mary has chosen? We're told in this story, Martha has a sister called Mary. This is verses 41, 42. Martha has a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, learning from what he said. A lot of people look at that story, and a lot of times it's taught, and I've taught it this way, as saying that it's Jesus' way of saying don't be busy all the time. Sometimes you just need to sit and rest and reflect. No first century reader would have understood the story that way. Jesus is not condemning Martha or commending Mary because of their involvement or lack of involvement in the kitchen. He commends Mary for doing what men stereotypically would do. Sitting at the feet of a rabbi. And by the way, before this incident, there is no record anywhere that they're aware of of women being chosen to sit at the feet of a teacher. There's a whole lot about the way that Jesus deals with and treats women that changes the culture incredibly. Let me give you another example. One time, Jesus is teaching. He's being provocative, confronting people. It creates a little bit of tension. Somebody tries to ease the tension in the room by offering up a common saying, a platitude. What they said to Jesus, this is in Luke eleven twenty-seven, 27, says, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. We can agree about that. That's, that's mom and apple pie. Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. Anybody in the ancient world would hear that and they would applaud That is a recognition of a woman's high call to give birth, to to give birth to heirs, particularly male heirs in that part of the world. So you'd expect Jesus, when he hears that, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you, to say, Amen. Moms are great. Hail Mary, full of grace. She got me into the human race, or whatever. But that's not what he says. He offers up, as Jesus often does, a deliberately provocative response. He says, in effect, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Not just blessed are moms because they're moms. There is a revolutionary new thing happening through the gospel. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. That is disciples. That is women... Like men, will no longer just be defined by the roles that they play in these organizations and society, but by the lives that they offer to God as disciples. It reminded me this week of a, an old story. You've probably heard it before. It's probably a preacher's favorite story. But a CEO traveling with his wife, they stopped for gas. Uh, he notices uh, her talking to the gas station attendant. Turns out they knew each other in their youth. Turns out actually they dated in their youth. And as uh, as they go back and climb into the car, having paid, they're driving off. Uh, he asks her about the relationship and and says, "Boy, I bet you're glad you stuck with me instead of him, a CEO of a Fortune 500 country company, and him just pumping gas." And she said, "No, actually, I was thinking." That if I'd married him, he would be the CEO and (laughs) you would be there pumping gas. Of course, the problem with the story is, how come she can't be the CEO? Or better yet, how come we can't allow people to find their dignity and their personhood and their contribution in something more than their identity in these old roles? That's a little bit of what's going on in Corinth. Um, I want to say something, though, about the understanding of household roles, because there's a lot of that in the teaching, that wives, you submit yourself to your husband, husbands, you love your wives as Christ loved the church. Those are household co- codes. How, how do things work in the house? You might know, if you've been around the Bible for a little bit of time or done any work in the history of the Bible, that the household formed the basic infrastructure of the early church. There was nothing like this. There were no buildings and, and deeds to property and paid staff and nominated boards, one called deacons, one called elders. That's absolutely foreign to the ancient world. And part of the dilemma when we try and take titles like elder and deacon from that world into this world is that is that we use them in very different ways and very different structures. But here's what we know. For the first several centuries, 300 years or so, not only did the church not have anything like this, the basic unit of life in the church was the household church. In fact, if anything, what COVID 19 is doing is bringing us back to that understanding like that old meme, that cartoon that was circulating itself about seven months ago, where Satan sits opposite, uh, sits opposite God in cartoon caricature and, and is, is sort of uh, taunting him, saying, what are you going to do now, God? I've closed all of your churches. And God says, but look, I've opened one in every home. Right? The household church was the basic unit that governed the structure of the body. And here's what what maybe you don't know, that of the households that Paul mentions in the New Testament, over half of them are mentioned by women. And they're headed by women. It's a staggering percentage in the ancient world. It means that the influence being exerted there is disproportionately high. Where did that come from? It flows from the way that Jesus dealt with and treated and honored women and men. So let me just say something to the room and to those who are joining us online. If you're a woman and a follower of Jesus, find out how God has gifted you. Whether it's with leadership or administration or teaching, evangelism, encouragement, whatever it is, develop the gift. Use the gift. The world needs you. The Church of Jesus needs you. MCBC needs you, and we will cheer you on. So that would be kind of an egalitarian reading of 1 Corinthians 11. Women and men, equally called, mutually independent, governing according to their gifts. Let's look, though, at some of the words that maybe should give us pause. One of the key words in that passage, one of the words that complementarians wrestle with, and rightly so, is the word translated head. You see it there throughout 1 Corinthians 11, head. It's the Greek word "cephale." We get the word uh, electroencephalogram from that, cephale, the, the electric impulses that determine what's going on in the head. And in English, when we hear the word head used as kind of a metaphor, generally, don't we think about the boss, the person in charge? That's the head. So it sounds like what Paul is saying is the man, if he's the head, is the boss of the woman. And complementarians, they, they, actually, they, they, they absolutely want to wrestle seriously with God's word, and so they wrestle with, with that word, and they take it very seriously, as they should. And that's where the notion of, of different roles enters into their understanding of biblical equality, that women exercise lots of leadership roles so long as it does not place them in a position of headship over men. Here's where it comes from egalitarians would want us to have a closer look at that word itself. They would say that, that there's an awful lot of discussion. They'd be right about, about what that word meant, about how scholars and linguists understand the way it was used, particularly as a metaphor. And those of you who speak more than one language, you know that metaphors are the hardest part of language to translate from one to another. right? Metaphors and humor. It's why every time I try and preach and it gets translated into another language, all the humor flops and all the metaphors leave people going, I don't get it. (laughs) I don't get it because metaphors don't translate well. But what do we understand about how the word head is used as a metaphor? To be clear, the Bible absolutely speaks about the authority of Jesus and it talks about the headship of Jesus, but not at the same time. Not at the same time. The language of headship, among the many things that it can mean and sometimes does mean, is is the source of something. The kind of English equivalent would be like, these are the headwaters of the river. It doesn't mean it's the boss of the river. It means it's the source of the river. It's where the river flows from. In that case, you could say what Paul is getting at is that just as Christ came from God and man came from Christ and the woman came from the man, as you remember the Genesis story of women being created out of the side of the body of man. That the idea is dependency, not hierarchy. But listen, I want to I acknowledge that there's a lot of debate about this. You can look it up. There's tons of really long papers about that one word, cephali. But ultimately, I don't think that a lot hinges on how you settle that question, and here's why. And I hope you'll hear me out on this. We are left with two possibilities when we read this text and lots of texts like it. Here's the first possibility. Male authority is cultural. Male authority is cultural. In the ancient world, men were in charge. That's just how it was. And so the question they're wrestling with is, what does it mean to have a Christ-like marriage and a Christ-like home and a Christ-like church in that culture? The teaching is timely, but it's not timeless. We might say, well, that sounds like a cheat. But if it is a cheat, then it's a cheat we use an awful lot. Let me give you an example. Ephesians 6.5, Paul says, Slaves, obey your masters as unto the Lord. doesn't say the system of slavery is an offense to God and ought to be rejected. That somehow we want to recognize that without validating the system of slaves and masters, Paul seems to be acknowledging the way that things are and providing some counsel for how you live in a fallen system. So there's your first option. Male authority is cultural. And I understand if, if there are people who read the Bible faithfully think, that's a dodge. I mean, you're, you're just getting out of a tight spot with that one. So maybe we accept that male authority is absolute, that this is the design and intent of God for human relationships and for his church. And so we say, okay, I'll follow you on that, and we'll go the whole mile. Let's go the full mile right to the end where we find Jesus standing, and let's take him seriously when he talks about what authority looks like. It's Jesus who taught us how to lay down our authority and sacrifice for those that we love. He himself said in Mark 10, 42 to 44, and I hope we have this quote. Mark ten forty-two. you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles have a way of lording it over them, and their high officials Exercising authority. Not so with you. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Either male authority is cultural or it's absolute. But either way, a household should look, feel, and function with equity. And so should the church. Women and men are to commit or to treat each other with dignity. Jesus' community ought to be a place where women and men find great honor. As Paul says beautifully, woman is the glory of man. Maybe people wonder, does that mean that she's lower than him? It doesn't mean that. Woman is the glory of man. How are you doing? Do you need a bit of a stretch? Let's do that together. Just a little bit of movement, what I really want to do is give you enough talking points that when you get into your small groups this week, um, that you'll be able to wrestle through some of these things the same way that we're wrestling through them. So I, I want to give you one other launching point, um, and it has to do with the creation story itself, because often we'll go back to, as we should, the story of creation, and um, And sometimes people argue that because it says in Genesis that man was made first and then woman is made from man, comes from his side, that somehow the order implies hierarchy. He was made first, he comes first. And then there's the episode later on where where it looks like in the garden, even though both of them made a decision to rebel against God that That Eve rebelled first, and then Adam rebelled second. So we take our cues from the order. The problem is, and again, I don't want to diminish that, but I want to present you the opposite thought. The argument from order can work both ways. You could also say that God made animals first and then made man. That man was a big improvement on animals. But maybe then God said, listen, I'm just warming up. I made man, now I made Eve. Save the best for last. The, you see, the, the, the argument from order has a way of cutting both ways. What the text does say in Genesis, which is really fascinating, and I hope you realize, even though it's familiar to us, how absolutely unique this was in the ancient world. The text says that God created human beings in his own image. Genesis 1.27. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now the notion of human beings being created in the image of God, that's not unique to Israel. It's not unique in the ancient world. But the way that it's taught out in other nations is vastly different. In most nations, the only person who was made in the image of God was the king. And because the king was the image bearer of God, it was a way to exercise power and dominant authority. What's revolutionary in Genesis is that the image of God is universal. And what's really striking here is that the author seems to deliberately say, male and female, he made them in the image of God. And then God blessed them, and he said, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over, be caretakers of all the plants and animals, and and so on. In Genesis, in its opening chapters, the creation account, very careful to say that God makes man and women in his image and gives them both the mandate to rule. There's no hint of hierarchy in the creation story. Where's the first time we see hierarchy enter the picture? It's not in the account of creation. It's in the account of the fall. When sin enters human life, it devastates our relationship with God and with each other and with creation. And one aspect of that brokenness, of that devastation is pronounced on the woman as part of the curse. Understand where this comes in the story. This is part of the curse Your desire will be for your husband, Genesis 3.16, and he will rule over you. But sometimes this gets lifted up and taught as God's intent for creation. It's not the intent. This is part of the fall. This is part of the curse. In the same way, it talks about pain in childbirth and painful toil and, and thorns and thistles and laboring by the sweat of your brow and death itself. The idea that somebody has to be in a domineering relationship is not part of God's plan. It it gets worked out in in these silly and destructive ways. The core reality of the Bible, rooted in the identity of God, is this idea of of Trinitarian fellowship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Living together in mutual love and submission. Three as one. And then when it comes to men and women, it says... In you, the image of God dwells, two as one. Husbands ruling over their wives. Part of the curse, not part of the design. Earlier on in 1 Corinthians, uh, if you want to turn with me, 1 Corinthians 7.4. Paul's writing about marriage and about sex. And he, and he says, the woman doesn't have authority over her own body, but yields it up to her husband. No surprise there. In the ancient world, that would, that would get a lot of head nods. People would understand. In that world, a woman always belonged to somebody. You know, we give people's hands in marriage. You know where that comes from? It's an ancient Roman custom. Very ancient, you know, over 2,000 years. When you give somebody's hand in marriage, they're given with hand. It means the father says to the groom, she is no longer my property, she is yours. You could also be given in marriage without hand, which means she is your wife, but she remains my property. Either way, you are always the property of somebody else. A woman doesn't have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. But read on. In the same way, a husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Are you kidding me? That point, all the wives, they break out into applause and husbands are thinking, my wife has authority over to me. What's the point of being a husband then? The point is, of course, that in Christ and in the community of the crucified one of the cross, we no longer live just for ourselves. We've died to all of that. And now we live for one another. Yeah, we should probably wrap things up. (laughs) Let's uh, let's circle back to 1 Corinthians 11 and... Uh, I'll just help you out with one more little part of that passage. And then I want to release you this week to gather in small groups. And um, I hope you'll I hope you enjoy the discussion. I hope it will be fruitful and, and prosperous for you. Um, part of this long discussion, First Corinthians 11, um, circles around all these discussions around head coverings, long hair, short hair, um, things that seem quite odd to us. One of the things that you... You realize and that I hope you will acknowledge if you've studied any of the history of the ancient world, is that Corinth was notorious as a very sexually promiscuous city, the patron saint of Corinth, no surprise here, the goddess Aphrodite, yes, the temple of love, the goddess of love, temple prostitution was the most prominent part of the history and culture of that city. And the depictions of it in tile mosaics and in paintings are really quite shocking. I mean, if you think pornography is rooted in the modern world, uh, actually don't read it. But if you did read it, you can see there. One of the ways that temple prostitutes identified themselves was through an unveiled head. Most likely, the instructions, the, the laborious instructions about head coverings and long hair and short hair are all about making sure that the people of God somehow stand apart from what's going on in the rest of the city. Does it mean that people, women in all cultures, should cover their heads in worship? I hope not, or we're in trouble here this morning. Uh, Does it mean that that men in all cultures should leave their head uncovered? I hope not, because every rabbi I know When they meet for worship, do so with a head covering on. And so do all of their men. Does it mean that in worship, men are not to wear long hair? Certainly my grandfather told me that. but. But I'd respond, well, what about Samson? What was the sign of Samson's obedience to God, the source of his strength? It was his long hair. What does it mean for women who wear their hair short? How we, how we deal with those kind of issues matters. I guess what I want to suggest to you is that in reading the Bible, we absolutely want to take it as sacred and authoritative, but that doesn't excuse us from doing the hard work and the important work of understanding the world where it was written and the world where we live. By and large, and I don't expect this will change in this series, we come to the Bible having our minds already made up. And then we gravitate to the scriptures that reinforce what we've already decided. And you will find again and again on a lot of these contentious issues that that will be the case. The language for that, if you want the technical word is, Nick, you remember this, iso-Jesus. Not Jesus with a J, Jesus with a G. It means reading into the text, taking my view and putting it on the text. What we want to be about is exegesis, allowing the text to speak to us. And that requires courage and humility to place yourself under the text to be able to do that. I have three minutes. I don't really. I'm probably already over time, but uh, I want to say a little bit just in the way of encouragement and counsel to the church. I hope that we can be the kind of community that teaches children how to honor and reveal all human beings, regardless of gender. That's been my experience of MCBC. I know our history. Those of you who have been around here for a long time, I think would agree to say this church started with firm complementarian roots. Maybe that's changed over the past 40 years. I don't know. But I still want us to be a kind of church who revere all human beings. Somebody was telling me about a Sunday school class where where the boys said, you know, there's no girl heroes in the Bible. Are you kidding me? From Eve, the mother of all humanity, chose to continue the human project even after the pain of the fall Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Deborah, the warrior leader of Israel, Esther who risks her life courageously, the savior of her people, to Ruth, to Naomi, to, to Hilda, the prophet, Miriam, Tamar, Mary, the mother of Jesus, that little group of women who had the courage to stick with Jesus right to the bitter end when all the men had fled and became the first witnesses on the morning of creation, and the morning of resurrection. Phoebe, the deaconess of the early church, charged to read and then would have been expected to teach and explain the most difficult portions of the book of Romans. Priscilla, the teacher. Lydia, the great patron of the early church. Junia, the apostle. Anybody who thinks that the Bible has no women heroes just hasn't been reading the same Bible that I am. Let's teach our children that God made women and men alike to serve in giftedness and humility and joy, and to live with courage and faith. And yes, we're not the same. And yes, we complement each other with servanthood and respect. But let's be a community where we honor the gifts of people. It means we honor marriage. Spouses are devoted to each other in faithfulness and integrity and submission and healthy relationships. And as Karina reminds me again and again, you're not the boss of me but let's also be a community where we honor singleness. And we remember that Paul actually commended singleness as an option for women and men because he believed that the contribution we make as disciples of Jesus is more important than conforming to social norms about getting married. Let's be a community that prays for and works for and, and, and labors for the protection and the elevation of women in the home and in education and in health and in the workplace where we live, and all around the world. And if you're a man, if you're a man, I charge you this. Cheer on the women in your life. They are your mom. They are your sister. They are your friend, your wife, your daughter. Pray that God will use them to the fullest potential that he has endowed into them. And if you're a woman I want you to know that you are made and cherished by God. You bear the image of God. You carry the calling of God. Be courageous. Be energized with the gifts that God has placed in your life. Be at peace in the knowledge that God accepts you apart from anything else the culture may say that you have to do or how you ought to look or the life that you ought to lead. And together, maybe all of us get the opportunity to show a world that is still radically broken across lines of gender and sexuality, what a community looks like when men and women serve and befriend and challenge and cherish each other in Jesus' name. Can we do that? Amen.